Um, uh, before we get into the sermon, though, I have a couple of things I do want to mention. Uh, you just saw, heard about Halloween Hala for the uh, students. And just, you know, every year we, uh, I just, I usually make a little comment about this somewhere in this ballpark. Um, but, you know, when you think about uh, Halloween, uh, which is, you know, about 10 days away, less than 10 days away, um, th- there is an opportunity uh, because it is the only day in the entire year where your entire neighborhood comes and knocks on your door. And so if if you live in a neighborhood, you're going to have every family in that neighborhood knocking on your door. And just something that we've invited our congregation to think about is, is there a way uh, that you could bless your bless your neighborhood? Uh, Is there a way that you could think about maybe going a little bit above and beyond and uh, making uh, their trip to your front door as hospitable and as warm as possible? And, And one of the ways that we've suggested it is to buy full size candy bars. Uh, our, our family, we've been doing that at our house for years now, and we are known as the house that gives up uh, full-size candy bars. And uh, it's just, a, yeah, uh, it's, it's just, it's a way in which we're just trying to uh, recognize our neighborhood and be part of um, something energetic and fun that's happening in, in, in and around our, our neighborhood. So uh, some of you, though, have gone uh, in, 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 like above and beyond that. You've provided cider or you've had games in your front yard or you've just been physically present out there uh, looking to meet your neighbors. And so the invitation isn't necessarily to go buy full-size candy bars, although that is, uh, does seem to be a home run. Uh, it, the idea is much more the sense of like, what would it look like for you to bless your community on a night where every family is going to come and knock on your door? Uh, and so take advantage of that. You got 10 days and uh, man, we want to be a place, you know, we read that invitation every Sunday that this church opens wide her doors. Uh, well, we mean that on Sundays. We want the doors to be uh, wide open. But we also want that on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday as this church, which the church is not a building, the church is people, uh, as we scatter across this city, we want to be welcoming people and we want to be hospitable people. Um, and so we invite you to, to think about creative ways to do that. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is um, we, we have a phrase that we use uh, sometimes, and that is that we want to be a church not for ourselves. Uh, and so that means, yeah, yes, we, we provide uh, hopefully resources that help you grow and help you uh, follow Jesus. But we don't want to be a church that just thinks about us, or it's just inward focus. We, we want to be a church that's thinking about uh, who, who it is that God has put in, in and around us. And this idea of being a church not for ourselves has a couple applications uh, for the chapter that we're in right now uh, as a church. One is in regard to our seating uh, in this room. Um, it, we, we have gone back to one service, and uh, it's been been tight. Uh, last Sunday, we had more people than we had chairs, if you counted the children in, in the children's ministry. So we added a bunch of chairs this week, and so there's more chairs in this auditorium, but we only have a few more chairs that we can add. And so uh, one of the ways that we can be a church not for ourselves is not asking the question of, like, what's my way to get the most uh, uh, you know buffer space? Uh, it would actually be to say, scoot off all the way up and scoot all the way in and then sit beside the people that you uh, are that are in your row and so um, if you have a buffer seat beside you there's no judgment uh, but next week just don't have a buffer seat scoot, scoot in and uh, let's 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 make our seating as as efficient as as possible and uh, and you might say I don't want to sit by somebody well listen it, it's not that this is a chance uh, for us to be in a church not for ourselves where we, we scoot in hey, I'm seeing some movement here this is great um, so so snuggle, snuggle up 
Uh, another way that we can be a church, not for ourselves, is this. Uh, for, for the next little season of time, we are not going to have a staffed welcome table. And so over the years, we've had a table. It's moved, it's moved locations. But we've had a spot uh, where after the service or before the service, you could go out and find an individual who was kind of staffed as that, you know, they were at the welcome table. And, and we are, we're not going to have a welcome table anymore. Uh, and this is, this is how we're going to go about it. Whoever is hosting, so today, his name was Anders Gillis, uh, stand-up performer. Um, uh, Anders, Anders is the welcome table. And so if, if you are, uh, and obviously we'll say this uh, clearly in, in the weeks to, to come, but if, if you're looking to connect with somebody, connect with the host. And, and the host will be the person who can get you connected to the places or give you the information uh, that you're looking for. So on the one hand, uh, the welcome table is the actual human being. It's the person. But the other way to look at this is this. If you call Sojourn Home, we want all of you to be a welcome table. We, we literally want, want our entire church family to be the welcome team, uh, to where, you know, not in some weird way, but just that you have an eye towards people that you don't know, towards people who maybe look like they, they aren't sure where the bathroom is or, or whatever. You, you can just start a conversation and actually uh, invest in another person. And, uh, and this is a way in which we get to be a church, not, not for ourselves. Uh, we, we had a book on our book wall for a while, and it was titled How to Walk into Church. And part of the invitation in that little booklet was before you get out of your car to actually pray and to ask God that he might give you some wisdom and some insight, some, some creativity on where to sit and on who you're walking by. And I know we all have autopilot. I mean, I sit in the same seat uh, every week, too. Um, but as you, get, as you come into the driveway next, next week, uh, maybe that's not a bad thing to, to pray. Uh, you know, God, would you give me a creative approach to where to sit and, and who to talk to? And uh, if we all together work to be the welcome team, I think it would be a much more rewarding thing than having a welcome table uh, anyway. We might bring the welcome table back. But for this, this chapter, uh, we are all the welcome table. So uh, thanks for being part of that. And... Uh, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's all I want to say. All right, so we're in a series on the Gospel of Matthew, in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're working our way through, and today is part 26, um, and we are in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and we are actually uh, in the center section of the Sermon on the Mount, and let, let me show you what I mean. So I'm going to actually run you through a little outline here, kind of the structure of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is uh, Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7, and, and this is a way that you could break up the sermon. So the introduction would be Matthew 5, verses 2 through 20, and in that section we have something called the Beatitudes, uh, we've referred to it as the preamble, where Jesus kind of starts off with this, like, almost like a vision statement, a casting of what the good life is, and he gives a list of things that kind of shock us, and they're a little surprising, uh, that, you know, blessed are those who mourn. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. And you hear this list and you're like, wait a minute, what are, you, what are you talking about, Jesus? But Jesus is saying his kingdom is an upside down kingdom. And if you'll trust him, there's actually, there's actually flourishing to be had there. And so as Jesus is, is giving us those first verses, it's like he's looking around and seeing individual people and saying, that's a flourishing person. That's a flourishing person. And, and Jesus invites us into this way of, of seeing the world. Then the first section of, of the sermon would be verses 17 through 20 of chapter 5, kind of do double duty. Uh, so Matthew chapter 5, 17, all the way to the end of that chapter, verse 48. And in that se section, Jesus gives us six statements where he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. 
And Jesus goes through six statements that are kind of, they're kind of scriptural. Some of them aren't quite found in the Bible, uh, but they, the, the point that Jesus is making is these are very common phrases that you have all heard, and you might think they're right. And in some ways they are right, but you're not going deep enough. And Jesus gives us six of those statements that you, you've heard it said that thou shalt not commit murder. But I say, if you're anger, angry with anyone, you've already committed murder in your heart. And Jesus gives us six of those in that first section. The second section, the center of this sermon, is what we're going to be looking at today. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18. And in this section, he gives us three actions. And we saw the first one last week, to, the call to give, and then to pray, and to fast. Uh, and so in that first section, uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 48, uh, Jesus is, is inviting us into this idea of his that we need greater righteousness. And he says, you need greater righteousness in regard to God's law. In the second section, he says you need greater righteousness regarding our spirituality in regard to these practices of giving and prayer and fasting. And then the third section is Matthew 6, 19 uh, through chapter 7, verse 12. And he, he points to kind of to, to two relationships that we have, relationships with, with material goods and relationships with people. And in that section, Jesus is pointing towards the greater righteousness that we need regarding the world in which we live. And then there's a conclusion uh, that is uh, Matthew chapter 7, 12 through 27. So, so you can see that Matthew chapter 6, 1 through 18, where we're at today, is the centerpiece of the sermon. And um, you, you know, sometimes it's, it, you have to be careful here to not put too much weight on these things. Uh, but a lot of times when the Bible is written, there is kind of a, um, a shape to what's being written. And there can be quite a bit of emphasis as to what is at the very center of the teaching. And it's, it's actually written and presented in a very intentional way, almost like a triangle, to where the peak of the triangle is the most important thing. And, and today, uh, we are in that middle, that middle section. There's about 40 verses before it, 40-some verses, and 40-some verses after it. Um, but this ends up being the centerpiece of the Sermon on the Mount. So, uh, as we think about chapter 6, uh, last week we were in the first few verses, but I want to revisit Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. If you remember, uh, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is talking all about this, this, this call to, to be a righteous person, to have greater righteousness. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus actually says you have to have greater righteousness than the religious leaders. The religious leaders are out there, and they do everything right. They, they, do, they follow every law. They are so committed to these 613 laws. They, they, they are all about that. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses their righteousness, there's no kingdom for you. And if you were a Jewish person and you heard Jesus say that, you would be like, how in the world is my righteousness supposed to surpass the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? They're the top of the top. They're, they're the best. And yet Jesus says you need a greater righteousness. Well, we saw a little bit of what he was talking about through chapter five as he goes through those six statements where he says, you've heard this, but I say to you, you got to go deeper. You got you to go deeper into your heart that the, what I'm worried about or what I want you to think about is down at the heart level, not just at the external level. Jesus cares about what we do, but he really cares about our hearts because he knows that from our hearts flow our actions. So Jesus is like, man, if, 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 if your heart is right, your actions 
will be right. And so Jesus has this call to righteousness. But then we get to Matthew chapter 6. In the very first verse, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness. And so all of this call to greater righteousness, and then in chapter 6, Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness. Um, So, you know, when you give, when you pray, when you fast, Jesus expects his followers to do all three of those things. If you notice in those verses, in, 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 in Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, he says, when you give. In Matthew chapter 5, when you pray. Or Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, when you pray. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, when you fast. So Jesus expects his followers to do these acts of righteousness, you might say, but he's doing it with a warning. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness. These are important. He expects his followers to do all three, but be careful because they themselves can actually be dangerous. They, they, they actually can be places of, of danger for your soul. And you might say, why? And Jesus says, because we like to be praised by others. We like to do what we do to get the praise of other people. We like to do what we do to put on a show, to make other people think that we're something, to impress other people, to get their praise. And Jesus, uh, throughout this text, he, he, he uses the word hypocrisy or hypocrites uh, a few different times. And that, that, that's what he's talking about, is that uh, the, the Pharisees were standing up and they were doing all kinds of religious activity, whether it was giving to the poor or praying or fasting, all of this religious activity, all of this spiritual activity, they were doing it as if they were doing it to the Lord. When they gave their money, they would say these, they, were, they said the right thing. When they prayed, their prayers sounded so good. When they fasted, they really looked like they were suffering. And yet, they were doing it for false reasons. They were doing it to impress people, not in communion with the God of heaven. So they, you know, it's hypocrisy. It was virtue signaling, uh, a phrase that we uh, have become familiar with in our current culture. This idea of like just trying to indicate things about yourself, trying to hint to everybody else in these kind of like these subtle ways, but these really important ways that I'm, I'm really doing good stuff here. Uh, you do see that, right? <laughs> you, you, did, you did like my post, right? I mean, you, you, do know, you do know all the good things I'm doing, right? And Jesus says, watch out, because earning the praise of people is addictive. Earning the praise of people gives you an immediate feedback, an immediate, uh, potentially a hit of dopamine, that somebody else sees what you do and gets to compliment you or um, you know, uh, want to be like you or be so impressed by you. And Jesus' point is this is, this is actually... It's actually dangerous. And when we take our current cultural moment into consideration, we recognize how dangerous it is uh, for us. Uh, the local church in recent years um, has just been full, full of scandals. Um, church after church after church, pastor after pastor after pastor have, uh, have had just um, very public and very sad uh, scandals that have revealed uh, lies and hypocrisy, deception, um, efforts to, to raise money for things that are uh, deceptive, that they're actually raising money to pad their own pockets or uh, getting up and preaching one thing on sexual ethics, but then living a very different life uh, behind closed doors. And when those stories Stories then become public. It it is uh, it, it it's like proof to the watching public uh, that the church is full of hypocrites. 
too. And it's just, uh, it's not hard to find in our current cultural moment, uh, these displays of trying to do things on the stage or trying to do things on social media or trying to do things in public that then in private uh, are far, far, far from true. The uh, praise of people, it might feel good in the moment, but Jesus is actually saying you're missing out because there's, there's, a, there's a better reward. There's a better reward than that momentary praise, than that feedback from other people. So what he says in these, uh, when he walks through these, these three, giving to the needy, uh, praying, and fasting, he says give, do it, but don't do it for show. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. What about praying? Well, do it, pray, but don't do it for show. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. What about fasting? Well, do it fast, but don't do it for show. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus walks through the exact same logic with all three of these spiritual practices. And he's looking at his followers and saying, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't miss what I'm saying. Giving, praying, and fasting, these are good things. You're not going deep enough. See, he's doing exactly what he did in chapter five. You have heard it said that thou shalt not commit murder. Okay, right. Don't murder people. But I'm telling you, if you've got anger problems in your heart, you're murdering them with your heart. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say, if you look lustfully upon a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Jesus is saying, you're not going deep enough. Well, now he's talking about spiritual practices. And he says, giving. Yes, give. But watch out. Because you could give to put on a show. You could give for poor reasons. Give, do it, but don't do it for show. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Pray, fast, do these things. But don't do them for a show. Go deeper. Ask the better question about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Jesus is showing us that we need a greater righteousness. See, the scribes and the Pharisees did all of these things. They were checking the box. But Jesus says you need a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. It can't just be checking the box. It can't be, did you give? Did you pray? Did you fast? Jesus says it has to be deeper than that. So what, what are we to do? If we're supposed to beware, be careful, what are we supposed to do? Well, still practice your righteousness. Still practice your righteousness. Jesus, again, is not saying distance yourself from these spiritual practices. Not, not at all. He actually totally assumes that these will be part of the Christian's life. So he, he points to these three areas of spirituality, or sometimes the word piety is used, our religious practice. Um, and yes, there is a danger of performance, but we're still to do them. So when you give, when you pray, when you fast. Let, let's look at each of those three. Giving, not going to spend a lot of time on this because we spent the whole week on it last week, uh, about Jesus' invitation to give to those who are in need. Uh, and what we saw last week was the call to be generous, uh, to do it quietly, uh, and then to be, to be a, little, a little crazy, a little reckless, um, uh, you know, a, a little spontaneous. That's part of what it means when it says, don't let your uh, left hand know what your right hand is doing. There, there's a little bit of a, uh, of a, uh, a spontaneity to, to what you're doing when you see people in need, that you're ready to help them. And if you want to consider that more, uh, I, I preached on that last week. Second, praying. Um, we're we're going to come back to this section 
in January. And in January, we're going to do a series on, on the Lord's Prayer. And so we're going to take multiple weeks uh, to walk through the Lord's Prayer. So today, I'm not trying to teach on like the, whole, the wholeness of, of the Lord's Prayer, um, because I think it helps us to actually get what Jesus is doing as he kind of addresses all three of these things. And so we are going to come back to the Lord's Prayer. But let me give you a flyover of this section, uh, verses 5 through 15, that Jesus has on, on prayer. Jesus is saying, instead of people praying for show, he says, go into your room and pray to your father. And listen to how one translation puts this. Pray to your father who is in that secret place. Isn't isn't that interesting? Go into your room, close the door, and pray to your father who is in that secret place. There's almost a sense in which there's an intimacy that happens with Jesus, uh, with the God of heaven, when, when there's a, a, a privacy to it. It doesn't mean that public prayer is wrong at all. But maybe you're familiar with this idea that it's called a thin place. And so, some authors really have, have found value in referring to places as thin places. And that, that you, you might experience this auditorium as a thin place. Uh, a thin place is a place where it's just a little bit easier to experience the presence of God. Uh, when, when I was in, in Israel uh, a, few, a few years ago, uh, we went to a, uh, to a cave in a, in a pasture. And um, the guide that took us there, uh, we went and sat in this cave and it smelled terrible and it was, it was wet and it was just nasty. And, and our, our guide indicated that uh, it's very po- probable that this was the kind of condition that Jesus was born in. And you sit there and you realize, okay, these caves... Uh, end up being shelter in the storm, but that means they end up full of sheep poop and trash and mold, and, and it, it's, 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 a, it's kind of a, a, a gross place on the one hand, and on the other hand, you realize that, that, that the king of heaven came as a baby, and that's how he entered the world, and we were just given time to just sit with that. Later in our trip, we were uh, uh, on the on the on the uh, Mount of Olives, or, or on, uh, on the uh, mountain right by the city of Jerusalem in the uh, Garden of Gethsemane, uh, what they believe was the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know, these trees live for a long, long time. And you, and you you sit there, and we were again given time to just sit there and realize, like, it's possible that this is the dirt where where Jesus prayed on the night before he was arrested. And you just, you just sit there and it's like, there's nothing necessarily magical about that dirt, but it felt like a thin place. Uh, later in our trip, we were on the, on the stairs of the temple uh, where they think Acts chapter 2 happened when Peter preached that sermon and the spirit moved and thousands of people responded in faith and were baptized. And we were out on these stairs. And you just sit there and you're like, oh man, the movement of the spirit, like, the, the, you know, it's, the, this, this might be the spot where this happened. And it could be you have a rhythm of praying downstairs in a closet in your basement. Um, I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a house, a ranch, had a full basement, and we had a bathroom that was only partially finished. And there was a section that underneath the stairs, like my dad had set up this little, this little spot underneath the stairs, and he had kind of put all uh, carpet around all the walls, so it was kind of quiet. And that was my dad's prayer closet. And it had a door on it, and, uh, and he had a, a big table in there with all of his prayer requests. And, you know, we started to use that as we got older, and that felt like a thin place. It's like you, you go in this little closet underneath the, underneath the stairs in this basement, and it was like, it just felt like maybe, maybe God's here in a unique way. 
And, and Jesus seems to be saying something like that. Like, go to your spot and, and, and get serious with God in prayer. And maybe that translation is a good one. The father who is in that secret place. Man, he, he's like, he's there. He's listening. Jesus' point is that the father is ready to talk. That he's, he's waiting for us to come sit down. And then Jesus does something different here than he does in any of the other three. He gives us an example. He gives us the Lord's Prayer. Now, we, you, you might know this, but the Lord's Prayer is also recorded in Luke chapter 11. And in Luke's record, here's what happens. Jesus is praying, and he gets done, and the disciples are like, oh, okay, could, could you help us out? We've never seen anything like that. What, what, what did you just do? What, what was that? We thought we knew how to pray. Could you teach us to pray? Because we don't talk to God anything like that. Not like what we just saw you do. And then Luke records the Lord's Prayer. Matthew gives us the Lord's Prayer right here in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. And by the way, it's the center of the center section, which is the center of the sermon. So if structure has anything to do with it, the Lord's Prayer is the top of the triangle uh, for the, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and, and Jesus offers us something incredibly rich and deep. Uh, the Canadian author John Smed says, we become what we pray. And Jesus offers this for what we should pray. So we'll move through this. Uh, we're coming back to it in January, and we're going to take our time. Before today, here's, here's some of the phrases. He starts off with our Father, emphasizing that there's a relational dynamic here, that this is not an impersonal force. This is not karma, not yin-yang. It's Father, right off the bat. He says, how would be your name? And there's so much to say about every one of these. Hallowed be your name means to, to glorify God's name. And just as a side note, you know, name often has to do with reputation. You've ruined my name, someone might say. You've muddied my name, someone might say. And Jesus says, one of the things that we want to pray about is that we actually glorify God's name. Not that he needs us to do it, but just that we would be people that live in a way that honor the name of God, that magnify and glorify the name of God. Hallowed be your name. Uh, your kingdom come, your will be done. This is an invitation or a call for God's rule and reign to be experienced on the earth. God's already in control, but there's, this is an invitation to say we want to see it here, and we want to see it in every crack and crevice. There's a little phrase that's become popular in a certain number of churches, and it's this, this idea that, you know, when, when Jesus says that your will be done uh, in heaven, uh, on earth as it is in heaven, uh, that some churches are taking that and applying it to their cities. And so would, it would be something like that your will would be done in Traverse City as it is in heaven. And that, 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 that's a beautiful picture, isn't it? This idea of saying every crack and crevice, that God's will, that God's, that God's kingdom is being brought to bear. And, and every time we feed a hungry person, we are bringing the kingdom of God to bear on that situation, on that hunger. Every time you clothe the naked, you are bringing the kingdom to bear on that naked body. Every time in the Bible that we see a miracle happen, it's Jesus bringing the kingdom in that specific spot. Somebody who couldn't hear now can hear. Like that's the kingdom coming to earth. That's what it's going to be like. There's going to be no deafness, no blindness, no hunger, no nakedness. 
That's, that's not what the kingdom's like. And every time that those things are resolved, we experience the kingdom of God in this little infinitesimal way, in just this one little spot. And Jesus says, it's right to pray for that, that your kingdom come, your will be done. Every crack and crevice on this earth, every crack and crevice of my own heart, give us daily bread. Man, this is an invitation to remember that we are dependent on God for every single need. And we are in a culture that has so much. It can be very, very hard to even figure out what this means. What does it mean for God to give us our daily bread? My guess is that the majority of the people in this room have not just you know, today's bread, but tomorrow's bread. And maybe if you went shopping yesterday, you have, you have food for days, weeks. And this is an invitation to actually come to God recognizing, boy, we are dependent. Forgiveness. We need it, and we need to grant it. Jesus, isn't this amazing that when Jesus teaches them to pray, he's like, okay, let's be honest about this. This one's going to come up a lot. <laughs> uh, forgive us, Lord. Uh, this is going to be a rhythm and a, and a refrain that the, the followers of Jesus better get used to. Uh, because we, we need it, and then he ties in this idea of our posture of forgiving others. So we need it, and we need to grant it. So just like we need bread all the time, we're probably going to need forgiveness all the time. And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us. Th these are all rich and deep. This one might be the most complicated one, but let's just put it this way. We, we, need, God's, we need God's protection. We, we, we need God's protection. We are well aware uh, that we are invited to be aware of the fact that the, the, the true battle of the world is not a physical one. It's a spiritual one. And that God is the, the great protector. So this is the invitation that Jesus gives us to pray. The third one is fasting. Now, this is not very common in our culture, uh, really, at all. But again, to Jesus's point, we are missing out if we don't do it. Uh, to fast is to put something down in order to pick up something better. The, the, strictly speaking, the idea of fasting is to go without food. Uh, it's, uh, you know, but there can be variations for sure. Go without screens, go without shopping, you know, whatever. Uh, one year, you know, my daughter said that she was going to go without cleaning her room. You know, lots, lots of options, lots of options. Um, but the idea is that you're putting something down that is important to you in order to pick up something that is more important, that something, something that's, that's, that's more significant for your soul. And then, you know, the, the Bible's invitation here is that we fast in order to more, tensional, more intentionally seek the Lord. And you say, well, why, why should I fast? Here, here are some of the things that the Bible seems to hint at. One would be repentance of sin. That we, that we fast in, in, in response to our sin. That there's a recognition in our life of, of, of something that, that we have done or that has been done to us. And there's this recognition that sin is real and it's part of our story. And there's a way in which putting down food and picking up the Lord and actually saying, instead of preparing meals, instead of eating meals, on this day I'm going to spend that time uh, with, with the God of heaven. Uh, that can be in response to, to, to sin. It can also be to focus on a specific hardship in your life or in the world, an injustice that you are observing or that you are seeing. It can also be for, for I mean, one of the side benefits, I guess you would say, is the idea of self-control. And actually, I think this is a very good reason to regularly practice fasting. Because self-control, you know, going without food is a basic human appetite. And fasting is a way to learn to say no to yourself. 
Fasting is a way in which you have this basic human appetite, this basic human need of eating food. You, by the way, you won't die if you don't eat for a day, if you didn't know that data point. You, you won't die, but you will be hungry. And so when you put food down and you do that in order to pick up something better, you're, you're invited then to recognize that this human appetite doesn't rule me, that I can actually say no to myself. And that's why when, when, when I fast, I do like to be very, very strict. So I, I like to fast when I fast for 24 hours. And if I start at 6 p.m. on Tuesday, I don't like to stop until 6 p.m. on Wednesday. If I say I'm fasting the whole calendar day, then I'm like, I want to wake up and go to bed without eating anything. Um, yeah, they, like the idea of just, I, I drink coffee and water and that's it. And, and some people have other ways that they go about it, and that's fine. But for me, the strictness of it is a way to say, hey, this is me, me reminding myself that I can say no to me. And if I can say no to me, man, that's like, that's ultimate freedom. That, that's ultimate freedom in Christ. To, to actually be able to tell yourself no, boy, that is, that is an incredible thing. That's a lifelong journey. And the last thing I'll say for reasons why fasting uh, over the course of the Bible, why, why it's uh, an invitation, is that we can go without in order to give to others. We could take the time that we would normally spend preparing food or eating food and give that to other people. Uh, we could take that time and give voice to someone who's, who, who's voiceless. We could take the money and give one-seventh of our grocery budget to, to, to someone in need or to a ministry that is helping those in need. And if you say, ah, oh, I don't think this sounds right. Well, uh, let's talk to Isaiah. Isaiah 58, verses 6 and 7. This is what Isaiah says, quoting the Lord. Is not this the fast that I chose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? To undo the straps of the yoke? To let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? I mean, God, God looks at the people of Israel and says, you, you, you want to know the fast I'm really after? I'm after you putting down these, 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 maybe these selfish things in order to be about these other things. Now, eating your food is not a bad thing, but I think we can all admit we eat plenty and there are those who don't have any. Could we go without in order to bless those who don't have? These, these are all invitations from the pages of the Bible in regard to why, did the, why do the followers of God fast? What, what are they trying, what are they trying to, to, to do? And it can be in response to sin. It can be in response to a hardship. Uh, it brings this, this, this uh, aspect of self-control. It gives you opportunities to give to others. These are all things that come as we put something down in order to pick up something better. You know, every first Wednesday, uh, we just kind of have this standing invitation for our church family to fast every first Wednesday of every month. And some of you do it. Uh, some of you do it every once in a while. And maybe some of you have never even heard us talk about it. It's not something that we uh, put uh, out in public. Uh, in part because, because of passages like this. Um, but uh, it's an invitation nonetheless uh, to, to, to fast on first Wednesdays. And I guess just uh, to make it very clear or overt, uh, this coming when, uh, November 1st, this coming first Wednesday, so not this Wednesday, but next Wednesday, uh, is November 1st. So it's the first Wednesday of November. We have a prayer night at 7. And I just want to invite you publicly to, 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 to fast with us. Um, and you can do that from 6 p.m. Tuesday to 6 p.m. 
Wednesday. You can do that all day Wednesday. Uh, if you might have some medical things, you know, make sure that you, uh, if, you know, if you have medical needs, make sure you're keeping an eye on those things. Um, but put something down in order to pick up something better. And I want to invite you to fast on behalf of what we prayed for earlier in our service, uh, this, this ongoing tragedy in uh, Israel and Palestine. And, and the wickedness of, of terrorism and the tragedy of loss of life and the fact that it's ongoing and that there are people in that conflict who have no reason to pursue peace, none. And so any efforts at peace don't make any sense because, to them because it's actually better for them to have it be a train wreck. And we want to pray. We want to pray for God to, to move in, in a mighty way. And I'm thankful for the nations, including our own, who have uh, made, made, made statements and uh, tried to get involved and to help uh, each side think about that more clearly. But yeah, we, we invite you to pray. And, and, and this coming, that, that, that week, we'll send out some resources to help uh, guide you through that, that time. But if you're saying, man, I don't know, I've never fasted before. Well, here you go. Uh, Wednesday, November 1st, uh, join, us, join us for that fasting. But let me finish with this. Why practicing your righteousness matters. Why practicing your righteousness matters. So I, I, I want to just say, what, what is hypocrisy? Jesus references it multiple times in this passage. He talks about the hypocrites. What, what, what is hypocrisy? Well, in, you know, in our culture, there's quite a few people who have a view that hypocrisy um, is living out of conformity with how they feel. That if they feel a certain way, they should be authentic, and they should, they should live how they, how they feel. And to not do that would be to be a hypocrite. But I want to suggest that that is the wrong definition of hypocrisy. It's not alignment with our feelings that determines hypocrisy. It's our alignment with our beliefs that determines hypocrisy. In other words, hypocrisy is not the gap between what you do and what you feel. Hypocrisy is the gap between what you do and what you actually believe. So if you wake up on a Sunday morning, we're here at church, so we'll use this as an example. If you wake up on a Sunday morning and you're laying in bed and you say, um, you know, I, I'm a follower of Jesus and I really do believe that one of the rhythms that God gave his people was to gather together for the corporate worship of, of him, but I just don't feel like it. Um, I'm a little tired. I have a few things that I would like to do and my heart wouldn't be in it. I just, I wouldn't be passionate about it. So I probably shouldn't go. There's, there's a lot of people that that's the logic. They don't want to be a hypocrite. They don't want to be disingenuous. So they say, I'll, I'll stay home. But listen, if everything that you just said is actually what you believe, then it would be hypocrisy not to come. You see, choosing to say, this is what I actually believe is true. This is the good life. This is what Jesus has invited me into. This is what Jesus calls me to. And pursuing that and having your emotions come along with you. Pull them along, correct or inform your emotions. That, that is actually, it's not hypocrisy, that's integrity. That, that, that's actually alignment in your life. Our culture has associated this with feelings. I want you to associate it with what you actually believe. See, Jesus revealed that the Pharisees did one thing, but they actually believed something very, very different. They said all these wonderful spiritual things, but it was actually for a show. It was to try to impress other people. See, see, the essence of the Christian message is not behave, it's behold. That, 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 uh, a guy named Jared Wilson said that. 
And he said it years and years ago. And I remember it like knocking me off my feet and being like, yeah, that is 100% right. It's, be, it's behold. It's not behave. Jesus is inviting us into this recognition that there's something you've got to see first. Do, do you think that your performance can be good enough? When Jesus says you need a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees, you think you can get there on your own? Do you think you can develop that greater righteousness? Look, the church has been taking a beating in recent years, and most people are ready to write the church off uh, because they say it is full of hypocrites. And maybe you've invited someone to come to church, and their response to you is, "Uh, I, I don't go to church because there's hypocrites there. Listen, if anyone ever says to you, I don't go to church because there's hypocrites there, there's two things you could say. One is, well, there's room for one more. But honestly, the, the, better, the better response would be if someone says to you, I don't go to church because there's hypocrites there, what you could say to them is, you don't know the half of it. If you think we look like hypocrites from a distance, you won't believe it up close. It is way worse than you think because we actually have the audacity to say that we love this Jesus and that we're committed to following this Jesus and that this Bible we think is actually from him for the good of our life, for the flourishing life. We have the audacity to say that that's what's important to us and that that's what we care about. And guess what? We fail to to ace the test. Every single day, we fail to ace the test. But listen, we don't go to church because we deserve it. We, we go to church because we are in desperate need. We, we go to church because we actually recognize that we want more of Jesus. Our hypocrisy is actually part of what drives us to gather and to learn and to be shaped because we want to see, we want to behold. And so we come to church even with all of our failures, even with all of our junk and all of our mess, and we gather in here not because we deserve to be in here, but because we want to behold the good news of who Jesus is. That same Jared Wilson said this, Christ's sacrifice on the cross and resurrection out of the grave are big enough, grand grand enough, effective enough, and eternal enough to cover your shoddy Christian life. And so we don't come in here because we deserve it. We don't walk in this, in this, in this building with self-righteousness, thinking that somehow, man, we've won the, the applause of the Trinity, and we've, we've done such an incredible job this week. God must be really, really you know, super happy with us. No, we come here because we, we recognize ourselves as in desperate need. The very prayer that Jesus taught us to pray was to call upon him for forgiveness, and we've become experts at that. That's the invitation for the people of Jesus. You see, Jesus is helping us to see why we give, why we pray, why we fast. And it's not to earn anything. It's to receive. We we do these things in order to receive from him. And this is the message of the gospel. Before we ever need to do for God, we need to receive what he has already done for us in Christ. Our favorite way to talk about the gospel is that the gospel tells us that our sin is worse than we think it is. Our sin is so bad that someone had to die for us, and not just anybody, the Son of God had to die for us. But at the exact same time, the gospel tells me, as bad as my sin is, that I am more loved than I could have ever dared to hope. Because the one who had to die wanted to die in order to rescue me back to the Father. And the more I see that, the more I behold that, the more I'm changed. See, Jesus is saying that these practices of giving and praying and fasting, and there's many more practices, 
These are just some of them. They help us see Jesus. And you ready for this? They help us become like Jesus. You want to become like Jesus? You have to look at him. And you have to look at his gospel. And you have to do it relentlessly. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, we are told to fix our eyes on Jesus. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18, we are told that by beholding the glory of God, we are changed degree by degree, little by little, step by step into the image of Jesus. And in the next chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 6, we are told that the best way to behold that glory is in the face of Christ. You want to behold the glory of God? Look at the face of Jesus. Consider this gospel news. Recognize what he has done for you. Behold that. Receive that. And as you do, you're going to start being changed little by little, degree by degree, step by step into the image of Jesus. Do you see Jesus? You know, Pastor Ray Ortland once said, stare at the glory of God until you see it. Stare at the glory of God until you see it. Why? Because once you see him, your heart will be transformed and you'll realize that your performance was never enough, but Jesus's performance on your behalf is all that you need. It's everything you need. And so we finish our services by coming to this table and we eat this bread and we drink this cup, the bread which represents the broken body of Jesus for us, the, the cup which represents the blood of Jesus spilled for us. And we do that so that we remind ourselves that with all of this invitation to the good life and with all of this invitation to obedience and to give and to pray and to fast, that there's something first we must receive. And if we receive it, it starts to change us from the inside out so that we actually become people who give out of the heart that Jesus is talking about, who pray from the heart that Jesus is talking about, who fast from the heart that Jesus is talking about. It's the invitation. We need to receive before we do. And so if you're a Christian, we invite you to come get this bread and get this cup. If you're not a Christian, there will be a couple prayers on the screen, and we encourage you to, to, to consider those uh, during this time. If our servers will please come, let's pray. God, thank you for these, uh, these invitations from Jesus, this instruction on giving and praying and fasting. God, my guess is that maybe one, maybe two, maybe all three of these are practices that are, that are hard for us. They might be easy to check the box and say, I gave, or I prayed, or I fasted. But it can be very complicated for us to have a heart that actually wants you that actually is, is giving in order to, 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 to experience you, to be close to you, to see you. As Jesus said, to, to, to come to that secret place where you are. So God, would you, would you draw us in? Would you help us to see the beauty and the value of beholding who you are and what you've done in Christ? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.